there's got to be a reason the seller would want to trade in this environment. When interest rates have gone from, let's say, variable rates at two to eight, quadrupled in order because investment yields, requirements of investors on the equity side really haven't changed, right? It's the cost of debt that's gone up. This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will help you escape the Wall Street casino and build wealth on Main Street by investing in real estate. I'm your host, Taylor Lotes, and today our guest is Fred Pierce from Pierce Education Properties. Fred is an incredibly successful and experienced real estate investor, having done over $1.2 billion, a billion with a B, in student housing projects. Today, we're digging into his experience as a student housing investor and really focusing on how he has raised capital from institutional investors, family offices, and retail investors as well. Comparing and contrasting those different sources of capital, how he kind of jumped the queue, if you will, and started with institutional investors. We get into that story. It's very fascinating and it's inspiring how he set himself up to achieve such a big feat, starting with a big check from an institutional investor. So we're going to dig into that. We're going to compare and contrast institutional family offices, friends of friends, and family and retail capital, everything along that. Capital is the lifeblood of any real estate investing business. And it's great to have an expert like Fred on the show today to dig into that topic. Once again, I'm your host, Taylor Loach. I'm a real estate investor and I focus on multifamily and self-storage investing. If you'd like to learn more about potentially investing with us on a future deal, just go to investwithtaylor.com, fill out the form, schedule a call, and I will look forward to speaking with you soon. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. That's when we're here. That's when we're doing it. Once again, our guest today is Fred Pierce. Let's go. Fred, thank you so much for joining us today. You have a wealth of knowledge that I'm just really excited to dive in and learn from your experience. But before we dive into the knowledge portion, can you tell our listeners a bit about yourself, what you're doing today, and how you got started in real estate investing? Well, first, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be on your program here. And yeah, it's maybe a different history and story in regards to me and and my company and how I got started. And, you know, it all started when I was in college, where I went to San Diego State, and I had a couple of internships. And one of them was with a company called the Goodkin Group, and they were a market research firm. So they did market studies, feasibility studies, gave advice to real estate developers and property owners, you know, on their plans for their new developments. And when I was in that internship, I just got enamored with commercial real estate. And I decided then at 21 that my ambition in life was to someday own my own commercial real estate company. And at that stage, I didn't know whether we would be developers or owners uh, and investors, whether we would be in office or industrial or housing or hotels or, you know, I didn't know any of that. I just liked the generic, you know, idea. And I, so I took a job with them, you know, after graduation and, and stayed as a consultant for 10 years when an opportunity came that one of the consulting projects I had was to give San Diego State University my alma mater, advice on what they might do to the incredibly underutilized land immediately surrounding the university. And they ultimately hired the Good King Group. And I was lucky enough to be assigned as the project manager 
and did a study and made recommendations to the university who ultimately followed those recommendations to a T, literally land use designations, boundaries of what became a redevelopment project area. You know, it ultimately ended up being more than a 5 million square foot project on 131 acres of land on 100 parcels surrounding this giant university that was landlocked. And after a couple of really successful large developers in the early 90s were unable to get the project off the ground, they picked two different developers, they came back to me and ultimately awarded me the opportunity to step in and become the developer. And heck, it was really logical at that point in my life. I had, as a principal, I'd built nine houses worth 2.1 million. So taking over a 5 million square foot project on 138 <laughs> acres worth more than 5 billion, that's a nice logical next step, don't you think? And But, you know, so long story short, I did that. We did that very successfully for more than 10 years in partnership with the university. And we gained national notoriety for what we were doing in university real estate and student housing. And opportunities started finding themselves towards me because of a strategic plan I put together to set up a national business and some boards and relationships that I built and the visibility and that came from that. So we took the platform national in 2006. And at that point in time, we had a resume from San Diego State, but no assets, no projects, just a business plan to go national. And within 90 days, we were awarded 1.2 billion of development rights at two major universities around the country. And within six months, we acquired our first $130 million portfolio, 3,500 beds of student apartments at big universities in Michigan. And we were on the map. And since then, we, our portfolio has grown and we've acquired $1.2 billion worth of student apartments, being one of the largest buyers, owners, and managers you know, in the country. And that represents more than 30,000 beds in about 39 states around the country. That's awesome. And what a whirlwind. And you, know, you really put in the work and, and made it happen. Thank you for summing that up. And before we started recording, we were talking a bit about your concept of the different tiers of investor capital and what you think about those and then how you leapfrog the first couple rungs, if you will. Can we talk a bit about that? Tell us about what you, how you see the different, again, rungs of investor capital and, and how you scaled there, if you will. Yeah, you, you bet. I, I call it the, the capital life cycle life in cycle commercial cycle. real estate. And, and it applies to pretty much any niche, any, any of the, either the four main food groups or the niche sectors of commercial real estate. And usually early in their career, when someone you know, sets out to try to buy properties or do developments, they usually start smaller and oftentimes start with friends and family capital. They go to their mom and their dad and their uncle and their grandpa and their closest friends, and they cobble together the several million that they need to, to fund a, an acquisition or a development, and, and they go down that road. And sooner or later, that source taps out. <laughs> There's only so much available for these kinds of investments from friends and family. So then what I call the country club capital route, and that is friends of your friends and family. And, you know, maybe these are doctors or lawyers or, you know, other friends, maybe they belong to your country club or what have you, that are looking for a place to make good investments. And that broadens your capital base at that stage. But you're not yet really deemed institutional. 
and you don't have access to institutional capital. But then often the third tier of that ladder, you know, might become family office where you've got centimillionaires or today billionaires who manage their own money with hired staff rather than hiring a third party investment manager. They do it themselves. And in those family offices are, you know, increasingly more sophisticated and can charge terms a little bit more akin to those in the institutional investing world. And so that is as, as a typical third rung before people end up with truly institutional capital, you know, such as investment advisors. And those investment advisors typically have very large multi-billion dollar commingled funds. They need to get the money deployed on a timely basis. And most of them work with partners, especially in value-add and opportunistic investments, maybe not so much in core investments, but value-add or opportunistic. And they look for companies like mine, you know, in our sector or others that have a successful track record in multifamily or officer, industrial or what have you. And so you end up with an institutional source with whom you can often do, you know, repeated business and sometimes programmatic business, have an intermediate term, actually programmatic equity commitment. And then finally, sort of the top of the capital food chain is it someone who it's actually their money because with those investment advisors, they've got a fund of other people's money. And then at the end, whether it's a life company or a pension fund or a foundation or endowment, it's actually their money that they're deploying. And, you know, that is that is nirvana in the capital world. So when we started our first deal outside of my development with San Diego State, where I worked with them on the capital, you know, raising and capitalization of those projects. First deal was with Fidelity Investments, a $50 million equity investment with debt from KeyBank and GE Real Estate for $130 million deal. So we leapfrogged over those first three sectors of friends and family and country club capital and family office right to institutional from day one. That would have been back in, in 2007. So at about 16 years ago or so. And we've done institutional joint ventures ever since. Then it's incredible that you were able to make that initial leapfrog, although you did put in a lot of work prior to that. It's not like you just showed up one day and raised 50 million bucks from a big investor, had your career prior to that and built your reputation and everything. So definitely didn't happen overnight like I think a lot of folks want. One of the things that people talk about when they talk about these big institutional investors is that they want terms that retail capital generally might not look for because they're writing such a big check, the institutional guys, they might want a bigger piece of the deal or different fees or things along those lines. What do you see in that way? And has that changed at all since 2007? So, so yes, you are right that generally speaking, if you can qualify to do a fund, you know, with retail investors, high net worth investors, that generally the sponsor of the fund can generate, you know, a little bit more rich, you know, fee structure and a little bit better promote or profit participation structure and definitely more control. Whereas on the inverse side, they have almost limitless piles of equity available to invest in the institutional market, but their terms are better for the investor uh, and not quite as good for the sponsor. But they can happen very quickly and decisions can get made quickly, but you don't have the same control. They have control of major decisions and your fees are tighter. 
and and your promote structure is not quite as good. So there's advantages and disadvantages to both. And we've had great institutional partners that are also about to foray into the fund world here uh, later this year. And what we're being told is that we're going to have better control and a little bit better terms than if we simply stayed with our institutional partners of the past. And we're going to still stay with those institutional partners because those deals are going to be bigger deals, right? You need more equity than I can raise in my first couple of funds. You know, I'm not going to raise a hundred million and put 50 million in one deal and 50 million in the next and only have diversification of two deals. You know, I'm going to want to get eight to 10 to 12 transactions. So we've got regional and, and other diversification for the benefit of, of all the investors, including us. Yeah. So do you find, and this might be a bit of a tough question, but it seems like there are some folks in the space that kind of look down their nose at retail capital and, and retail investors. What do you think about that? Because, I mean, we all have money that we need to place somewhere. I mean, heck, the people looking down their nose have their own money they need to place somewhere, <laughs> right? We're all kind of by definition of individuals are mostly retail investors. Do you see that? Are you concerned about folks having that opinion? I mean, probably not, but what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, since they started measuring who the leading companies in student housing are in our space, which was 2010, the leading periodical is a magazine called Student Housing Business Magazine. And they've been ranking the top 25 owners and top 25 managers in the country every year since then. We've been in their survey and qualified, you know, every year since their inception with one exception, which is a year when we sold 10,000 beds and <laughs> temporarily dipped into the top 30 instead of the top 25. But, but we've been in there, you know, for a very long time since the sector has gained institutional and global interest. And so we're already of a caliber and a reputation that we will maintain access to and our relationships with institutional investors for larger, you know, investment opportunities. But there's a window of medium, smaller and medium-sized deals that are good deals too, that will be a great fit, we think, for this retail market. And, and frankly, we have all the respect in the world for these individual investors who've, who've amassed you know, enough to be an accredited investor and that they should have access to this. And, and it's no longer available publicly. You know, There used to be publicly, outed, publicly traded student housing REITs, and the last of those and the best American campus communities, you know, recently went private with Graystar. And so, you know, it's no longer can a, a retail investor buy a, a REIT stock and, and invest in student housing. So this is an, a real opportunity for retail investors to get opportunities in what has historically been a defensive and recession resistant asset class, which makes it really great for a diversified portfolio because it performs even better when we're in a recession, uh, then the, the strong performance that we have in positive economic times. Mm -hmm. So on the institutional front, there's a lot of talk out there more broadly in the investing space today about, this might be a tough one. I don't know. This might be a hot topic. We'll see. We'll see if this is going to be trouble. There's a lot of talk right now around ESG and demands that larger investors and institutional investors are making on the companies that they invest in. Have you run across that? What has your experience been in that way with, with ESG and you know all this stuff going on? Yeah, so so we obviously are are in touch and very familiar with the trend of ESG investing. Generally speaking, it hasn't made its way 
into our sector as as sort of a mandatory component of your investment criteria. Uh, but we're monitoring that. We're we're sensitive to it. But it's not used in our space as a black and white. Like you know, an investment has to meet certain ESG criteria, or you won't undertake it. And uh, you know, so we're mindful of what demands of the investor universe are and what preferences are. But right now, while it's a consideration, it hasn't become a big part of, you know, of our investment criteria. Mm, okay. Okay. So I feel we've kind of just brushed up against, but haven't really dug into the family office investor of today and, and your experience working with them. If I don't know whether you focused on working with family offices in the past, but I can kind of hear my uh, friends that listen to the show who focus on raising capital being like, man, how do I get in with family offices? So what has your experience been working with family office investors? Yeah. So we've, we actually have a current investor who we recently closed a transaction with who is a family office. And so, and they've been really maybe surprisingly to us, because I don't know if we know what to expect, but they've been incredibly responsive so that we can get, you know, that we, it's a more linear approval process. I mean, Basically, we're getting to the billionaire who's making a decision very quickly. Of course, they've got investment professionals. They're a part of the staff in their, in their family office, but they've been able to move re relatively quickly. What I would say in our limited experience, and we're eager to learn more about it, is they, from what we've seen so far, they can be a little more finicky you know, as well. What do they want to invest in? What niches do they want to invest in? And you know, where we've been of the benefit that by being a top 25, you know, owner and operator in student housing, once institutions have decided they want to buy student housing, they want to invest in student housing, they end up calling us, you know, <laughs> we're not out dialing for dollars. You just look at that magazine and look at the top firms. And some of them have exclusivity with other partners, no room for new investment capital. So you take that list and it becomes even more finite. So when someone decides this is a strategy they want to pursue, in high likelihood, we're going to hear from them. And uh, whereas on the other hand, what we've found with our limited exposure to family offices, you know, each of them are a little bit different in terms of what land uses they want to invest in, you know, and how they want to do it. And we haven't yet found too many who've already said, we want to allocate X hundreds of millions to student housing from, you know, our family resources. It's more like, okay, they've been willing to look at a student uh, apartment asset and then consider it as opposed to already have made the decision to allocate a portion of their capital to the space. That makes sense. Okay. So they don't have it. Yeah. It's not as quite as dialed in as the institutional people in yeah. terms of how much they want to allocate. Yeah. Maybe not as structured, right? Not, not as structured. Because, you know, if you were to look at like an institutional source, PREA, the Pension Real Estate Association, every year they do an investor's intentions survey. And, oh, starting maybe back in 2016, you know, before 2016, their investor intention survey asked institutional investors, what percentage of the capital you're going to allocate in the next year are you going to put into office, industrial, multifamily, and retail, the four main food groups, right? And starting in 06, they realized that a not insignificant percentage of total capital allocation from institutions was going into niche sectors of commercial real estate, student housing, senior housing, self-storage, data centers. And so all of a sudden, they originally just asked them, is it one of the four main food groups or is it other? 
And now they actually ask for what portion of student housing, what portion of the healthcare, real estate, et cetera. And, you know, and by and large, the, the, and this is trillions of capital, you know, now these niche sectors are, are garnering, you know, 20% of the investable universe of capital are going into these sectors, which is a lot of money in sectors which w- w- aren't as large, right? Student housing, nowhere's near the size of conventional multifamily, right? Mm-hmm. And so by virtue of size, only so much capital can go into those, those areas. But uh, what that's done is that's got a lot of institutions thinking about what are the portfolio diversification benefits of allocating capital into niche sectors. And generally, there's not a high correlation necessarily with the economy or with the other land uses. So you think about apartments and maybe that its performance correlates with the economy and strong jobs and, and income, you know, and the like. Whereas in universities, you know, if, if students can't get a job when they graduate, they go to grad school. school. So enrollment growth is stronger in recessionary environments and senior housing, you know, well, they're on a fixed income, most seniors. And if they're living in senior housing, it's not like what's going on in the economy unless something really eroded, you know, their savings account, you know, or the retirement plan, they're not moving. They're staying in their senior. So so they, they correlate differently. And that's a smart and important factor in all investments, whether you're talking about fixed income and equities with real estate and private equity, or whether you're getting into real estate and you're allocating between, you know, the food groups and the niche sectors of commercial, of real estate as well. So have you seen a changing of appetite in the last, as when this goes live, it'll be about a year and a half of rising slash elevated interest rates. Have you seen the institutional folks kind of changing or shifting their appetite for whether it's student housing or commercial real estate more generally, I mean, I know student housing is your forte, but has that changed? Yeah, most certainly. You know, the transaction volume has slowed significantly. And valuations, if a deal is going to trade, then there's got to be a reason the seller would want to trade in this environment. When interest rates have gone from, let's say, variable rates at two to, to eight, quadrupled in order, because investment yields, requirements of investors on the equity side really haven't changed, right? It's the cost of debt that's gone up. So mid-teens returns for value-add and opportunistic, you know, mid-teens are higher, but mid-teens for, for value-add is where the returns still are. So now you've got to overlay a higher cost of debt, which means a lower price for the asset. And so if you're a seller and you're not required to sell, most are standing on the sidelines. And, and, and so, you know, but what, at the same point in time, there are some that it might be at the end of the life of the fund life or term of a commingled fund, and they're actually required to sell. And we've seen others who want to book a profit where maybe the cap rate is 100 basis points higher today than it was in 2021. But maybe that means they're going to earn a 19% levered IRR instead of a 30% levered IRR. It's that you know cap rates had compressed so much that back in 21, you were making, you know, uncalled for returns, right? And others are just saying, that's okay. A 19 is more than I underwrote and I'll take that. And so the deals that are happening, you know, either have a, a debt maturity and they don't like the new debt that can replace it. They have a fund maturity and they want to sell, or they've got a still a really good return and they're just going to bake that return and maybe think they could make good new investments in this environment where they can find 
you know, well-priced real estate, but the, the total volume is definitely slowed down and it's in every aspect of commercial real estate and student housing is not immune to a slowdown in the volume. Interesting. That's been my experience as well uh, in the multifamily space. So interesting you're seeing that in student housing. Before we go to three questions, I ask every guest in the show. Back to the family office, I kind of skipped over a question I wanted to ask about that. Regarding forming and cultivating that relationship, did you seek it out? Did you, you know, seek that person out or try to put yourself in a room to meet a family office investor? Or did they, like the institutional investors, pick up the magazine and go down the list till they, you know, eventually got to your name? Yeah. So, so in our case, it was neither. It was an intermediary. So one of our investment bankers who works with high net worth investors and, and they had, you know, a relationship with this client. Uh, they knew the client and in and, and this case had a 1031 exchange. And so in any event, they were able to put the two of us together and they were open to student housing. So it was an intermediary as opposed to a direct response from the family office or an outreach by us. Okay. Okay. But you had your name out there. You had folks looking for potential investors for you, it sounds like. So, so yeah. yeah and you know what I will say, I mean, if anybody get, has any interest in student housing, it's easy to find us. You know, we're one of the most, you know, quoted sources in the media nationwide. So, you know, you, if you Googled student housing or Pierce Education Properties, I mean, Pierce Education Properties will take up the first three pages of whatever <laughs> your search engine is with everything from articles to videos and news coverage. And like, so we've got a, a good profile in the media and the public spotlight for sure. That's a hard thing to do. So you should certainly uh, be proud of that accomplishment. Right now, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. Are you looking for a way to easily track your rental property finances? Check out Stessa. Stessa makes managing real estate investments simple. You can easily keep track of the performance, finances, and the paper trail of your rental properties. Our listeners can get started for free and then upgrade at any time to unlock their more advanced tools. And the even better news is that the upgrade is very affordable and will not break your bank. Smart investors know that tracking the numbers, tracking the money, tracking the finances is what really drives your success. Check out Stessa. It'll make your property finances easier. Just go to escapingwallstreet.com Scroll down to the Stessa logo and get started for free. Now back to the show. All right, Fred, I've got three questions I ask every guest on the show. Are yep. you ready? Uh, yep. Great. First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? Yeah, I, it was the investment in my company. And, you know, it was, I took out a first mortgage, a second mortgage, a third mortgage. I mortgaged my investment portfolio, the small amount that was in it and put it all into this company. And, you know, it's made us, made me who I've become professionally, made us who we are. And it's second to none was, you know, deciding this venture to get into this sector at the time that we did. It's been very fruitful and it's been very rewarding. Love it. So we had the best investment and now we go to the other side of that coin, the worst investment. What is the worst investment you ever made? <laughs> Well, and this is a little embarrassing, but you know, I will come transparent. I would say it is not my first, but my first and my second home purchase. Oh. I had not good timing on either one. And you know, if you can remember the old saying in the early nineties, that was stay alive till 95 and a piece <laughs> of legislation called FIREA took the savings and loan industry out of business. 
And back in that time, late 80s, they were the major joint venture equity source for home builders and especially out where I was in California. So, so I bought my first house in 1989 and, you know, and the rug got yanked out from under commercial real estate for a lot of years. So when I ended up moving, I lost money on that house. Then I bought in the second house and well, the time still worked very good and I lost money on that second house ever since been doing good on my own houses, doing great with investor capital, but those first couple of home purchases could have gone better. And those, those were probably the worst investments that I, that I made. Interesting. Well, sometimes the market can get the better of us, if you will. My favorite question here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson you've learned in business and investing? Yeah. So I think I would follow the old adage of keep it simple, stupid <laughs> and, and scalability. Uh, if you want really to ex exponentially grow your business and your opportunities. And I'll give you a brief example. But when I took my platform national, after having been the master developer for a multi-billion dollar project at San Diego State, and back in the mid 2000s, bigger was better, you might recall before the Great Recession, and mixed use and complicated was really in vogue. That the, Those projects were really neat, but they take forever. And we thought we had a differentiation other than the traditional student housing guys who were emerging in the sector. We knew student housing, but we also knew retail and hotel and office and research, you know, supporting universities in, in a special way. And we had big, large scale projects. So we went national with a couple of those and they ended up proving really difficult to try to execute. And in the end, if we stayed that course to do to be multi-use, mixed-use developers for universities and in university environments, we were only going to complete a handful of projects over a career because these are seven and 10-year projects. So you might feel, you know, feel a lot of accomplishment when you finally make one come about. But, you know, if you want to scale a business, that's not the way to scale it. And, you know, we learned very quickly when we went national that, that in buying existing student apartments, that I could close them quickly. I could own them right away. We could have management fees and acquisition fees right away. So an economic engine that could buy a lot of them because there was a lot of investors out there and it was a sustainable growth model. And so, so that's the message I would send is when you're thinking about your business and if you want it to grow and you don't want it to just be a small business you've got, then think about how you scale it being in a sector that's scalable, that attracts investment capital uh, and it enables you to, to repeat it time and time again. That's really served us well. And that's maybe my biggest lesson of business. I love that. And Fred, I want to thank you so much for joining us today and sharing all this knowledge. If folks want to reach out, if they want to get in touch or learn more about what you're up to, where can they track you down? Yeah. So, so our website is www.pepstudent.com. And that's the acronym PEP student.com, PEP being for Pierce Education Properties, but it's pepstudent.com or they can ring us up at our office. And that's a 619 number in San Diego, California with the number 297-0400. And really appreciate Taylor the opportunity to be on the program with you and, and share some of the insights of, of the student housing niche sector of commercial real estate. Well, it's a great pleasure to have you on the show today. I want to thank you so much once again for sharing this knowledge with our listeners. 
To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind. I appreciate that so, so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys. That gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street casino along with us. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Right now, I hope you have a great rest of your day and we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.